know yourself and then be yourself. Figure out who you are and then be that person. Don't mess around trying to be somebody else. We've all tried it and we've probably all failed at it. Welcome to Smart Rookie, where we shine a light on remarkable lives and careers defined by wildly winding paths rather than tidy straight lines. Join us as we speak with people who are fueled by wonder, grounded in humility, and perhaps most importantly, forever having fun. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Tallerman. And I'm Chelsea Carlson. To all the smart rookies out there, welcome to our kitchen table. Let's dig in. Hi, Noni. First of all, I feel like we need to start with what's our connection because we've never actually met before. But for everyone listening in, Noni gave the commencement address at my college graduation. We're both alums, Scripps College. And just so you know, Noni, how important this speech was to me. I was sitting in that crowd and I went in and I was feeling like the only person without a job offer at McKinsey or Google or a Fulbright scholarship lined up. And I was so excited to have this incredible speech by someone who didn't really fit into any boxes I had ever heard of before. And I was so excited and inspired by that. I'm very touched. That was such an incredibly proud day just to be asked at all to speak in any place in your university, much less to be the commencement speaker was kind of an amazing shock. I was like, are they sure they have the right person? Have they seen my transcripts? I did not make good grades here. <laughs> exactly. And I feel like you said so many incredibly refreshing things in that speech. And then afterward, we're also so sweet. All my friends and I were sending you LinkedIn requests and Instagram follows and you're like, yeah, of course, come on in. Elizabeth, maybe you want to tell Noni a little bit about why we had to talk to her. Well, we had to talk to you because we see you throwing yourself in to things, a total rookie, over and over and over again. Some of the things you're throwing yourself into, some of the things are being thrown right back at you. And we're fascinated by that. In fact, we're setting out in this podcast to debunk the myth of expertise. And our premise is that real genius, maybe even real success, doesn't come from having all the answers. It comes from asking a hell of a lot of questions. So before we dive into your rookie spirit, we've got to ask the question, what is your favorite cookie? My favorite cookie, and I make them three times a week, are those nasty rolls of Pillsbury <laughs> that you buy in the freezer aisle. And I buy them for myself and my family, and we buy the sugar cookie ones. And then I actually keep a secret supply of sprinkles in the cupboard. And I swear we must have those after dinner three times a week. They're the cheapest, nastiest cookies ever. They're delicious. Oh, it sounds like total joy. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It speaks to my inability to be fancy about anything, whether in work or in life. So I think this is a very appropriate podcast for me. And I hope that I can share some wisdom with other people who maybe feel like they're bumping up against 
a glass ceiling that they might have even created for themselves, struggling under that notion that I don't dare try because I don't know what I'm doing. Well, that's actually the best time to try. Don't get mired in what you don't know. Yeah. So what does being a smart rookie mean to you? Well, I'm also loving the elevated title of a smart rookie. And typically, I would just call myself just a grinder and a hustler. I mean, I'm going to speak specifically to being a rookie in the areas of life where we're trying to make money, our businesses and our jobs. Obviously, there's a million ways to be a rookie, but let's start there because I think that's what people are probably the most interested in is, oh, I'm feeling lost in life or, oh, I'm kind of bumping up against myself. What am I doing? I kind of want to do this, but my education is over here. And so I've always been, first of all, a huge proponent for just get the degree in a time where for the first time in my lifetime in America, a lot of young folks that I know and have a teenager are saying, we're not going to go to college. We're not doing that anymore. And I'm like, no, 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 yeah, you're definitely doing that. So I'm still very much about education and getting that degree. It doesn't really matter what it's in. Pick something that you like, pick something that you're interested in. I guess if I look back at my life, oh, I should have gotten a business and finance degree. Well, I would have failed out. It would have been miserable. And I didn't need one to launch four different companies. It's going to be okay. So to be a smart rookie, know what you don't know. Don't fear what you don't know. And then sort of what's the famous book? Feel the fear and then do it anyway. Or <laughs> I mean, I believe in that philosophy. And I think that there's tremendous strength in trying. And unfortunately, even more strength in failing a few times. I've certainly failed as many times as I've succeeded. And it takes a while to sort of lick those wounds. But man, your margin for mistakes gets narrow every time you kind of fall on your face. Noni, this is reminding me immediately of the story you told at the beginning of that commencement address, just about starting out in London, kind of having no idea what you're doing, total rookie, and how your degree kind of ended up being your, I don't know, your special sauce, your something that helped you stand out. So maybe just tell that story because it's too good to not be grateful. Yeah. So I was at Scripps College. I was not spending a lot of time in my classes. I was spending a lot of time in LA partying, being a raver kid. And I started dating this British skater boy. And when I graduated from Scripps, my parents said, well, surely you're coming back to Houston to work at the Houston Museum of Fine Arts. We're, we're well connected there. Maybe we could get you in uh, an internship or some sort of entry level and work your way up to curator. And I was like, oh, no, I'm following this skater guy to London with my backpack. See you later. And they went, oh, OK. They were so mad, so incensed after all of this expensive private education that they disowned me on the spot. And they said, when you come to your senses, there will always be a plane ticket home. But until that day, you're on your own, kid. We are not financing the adventure following the skater boy to London. So I ended up staying in London for 15 years. No ticket home. <laughs> I did mend fences with my parents during that 15 years. I would see them from time to time. That made me that much more determined. I'm not coming home with my tail between my legs. So I got to London. Also, I didn't have a visa. I didn't have a work visa. I mean, I had a fabulous education. I could have applied to work at any number of phenomenal museums or galleries. I didn't have a visa. So I kind of started panicking. And I was looking around London. You could sort of pull pints at the pub. You could be clean houses. You could, what were the jobs you could do to make a little money? And I thought, God, it's so weird. There's nowhere to get your nails done in London. The year's like 1995. That is so funny. And of course, they don't have in the UK the immigrant population that traditionally services 
that industry that we have in the United States. So there's a disconnect. They didn't have that service. If you wanted to get your nails done, you were spending 50 pounds at Harrods. I thought, well, that's crazy. And so I took my last $200 and I went and did a night class to try and learn how to be a manicurist. And I got my little piece of paper that declared I was licensed to be a manicurist. And then I was like, well, now what? I don't know how to start a business. Do I go work for a salon? I don't know. I can't, I, I'm still not legal. I can't work for a salon. So I got a picnic basket full of nail supplies and I would carry it on my arm and I would go stand outside the tube station at Liverpool Street, which is kind of like the Wall Street area in London. And I had these little scraps of paper with my phone number on it, my big giant old cell phone. And I would just sort of hand them out to people, ladies mostly, the professionals, the Wall Street gals as they came out of the tube. And then I would just go and sit with my basket in the park and wait for my phone to ring. I love it. You were busking, nail busking. I was nail busking. And you know what? Oh, my God. Those ladies loved me. They couldn't believe that someone so well-educated, you know, through conversing, through speaking, they were like, what's going on here? What are you doing with doing it? And, and I think people found that kind of fascinating. It takes a, a certain amount of humility to do these jobs that no one else really wants to do. And I think that the experience of having a silver spoon in my mouth as a young person and then suddenly not having a silver spoon in my mouth, I think that was extremely important part of who I am today and why I am the way I am. I will still get very, very humble with a nail polish company, Beauty Guard, that is one of my projects. When things go south at the warehouse, I'm down there packing boxes. To this day, I will go down there. I will pack the boxes. I will bring the sandwiches. I will tape the boxes. I will drive the stuff to the post office. You cannot expect anyone to do anything that you are not willing to do yourself. So there's Butter London, just an incredible brand that heralds in an entirely new era of transparency and safety in nail polish and beauty, the inventor of Three Free. And then Color Prevails, this more accessible brand. And then Beauty Guard, you keep throwing yourself into the role of rookie. Why and how? I do. Yeah. Why always be the rookie? There's something unappealing to me about not being in charge. <laughs> about not, I can't work for anyone else. I would be a terrible employee. No one would want to hire me. I am eccentric. I have my own funny way of doing things. And I don't love being the boss. In fact, I hate it. And in every company that I've ever had, I'm not the CEO. I mean, with Beauty Guard, yes. But even so, I, I mean, I, I don't want to run the P&L. That's just not where I bring value. So I love to conceive of these companies. That's the sweet spot for me is in the ideation. Where I fall down is on logistics and being organizing. I'm like the OG ADHD kid from before anybody knew what that was called. They just thought I was hyper. So I like to be able to see a concept through from soup to nuts. And what I seem to be good at is sharing that vision with other people and having them be like, yes, I want that. Whatever that is, I want to own that. I want to buy that. I want to finance that. I've always been very good at finding investors. And I do not come from business and finance. So you should see my investor presentations are hilarious. I'm just sure they're like, what is going on? There's not a chart or graph anywhere. Nobody's showing me any financials. And yet we get the job done. 
So I think that's part of the rookie nature, that hustle nature. I don't want to do it the traditional way. Well, and I think, yes, the vision, but you're backing that up every day. You have visions and you're one of the rare people that act on it and that actually get the hard work done of realizing it. Right. I can show you my projections, but wouldn't you rather hear about what we're doing and how we're going to get there? Like, that's what people want to invest in, the vision. We've got to swap presentations because it sounds like the kind of presentations we like to do, too. They're like, here's a great story because that's actually going to stick with you a lot longer than a boring graph of whatever. Well, thank you for that compliment. It doesn't mean it's not scary. So let me tell you a failure story. Let me tell you about just falling flat on my face. It was my second company. It was Color Prevails. Butter London was acquired. What do we do now? So I went to a colleague in New York and I said, hey, I have a really cool idea for a color cosmetic brand. And he was like, oh, yeah, I mean, everybody's still raving about this Butter London deal you've just done. You can totally have a home under my umbrella. What is it? I said, oh, it's this a color cosmetics brand. It's sort of like the naughty little sister of maybe some of the lauder brands. It's sort of mastige. It's not prestige. It's somewhere in the middle. And he said, we got to meet Walgreens. They're making a play for this exact space. And they loved it. It was once again, it was one of these meetings where I didn't have a single piece of paper with me. I didn't have a picture. I just had my imagination and was able to sort of take them on that journey. And they said, yeah, we want it. We want, we want the exclusive. It's going to be a Walgreens brand. And I thought, oh, I'm retiring. This is going to be it. Patting myself on the back. 140 pieces in the collection of Color Cosmetics. Huge collection. Took about a year to put it together. Everything from nails to lips to skin. And we launched in 3,500 doors of Walgreens. I mean, talk about fake it till you make it, right? I had never been inside the corporate machine. And Walgreens were very much a corporate machine. They were lovely to work with, but this was not my world. These were not my people. This was not what I knew how to do. And I was out of my depth. And what do you think happens? It's I had this sort of, if you build it, they will come mentality. And I will warn you and every single person listening to this, that mentality that if you build it, they will come can destroy you. Don't go there. <laughs> you have to build it and then you have to have a whole lot of structure underneath it <laughs> because we built it and they did not come. And so there we are in 3,500 doors and sales are terrible. That customer wasn't ready to pay more. We were so sure we could elevate them and get them to want this. And what ended up happening was I had the dubious distinction of becoming the most stolen item in the store. So they did want it. They just didn't want to pay for it. <laughs> Highly desired. They didn't want to pay for it. <laughs> Holy crap. My picture was stripped clean seven days a week. It was surreal. And so then what are you going to lock up the lipstick? Oh my gosh, come on. Now, simultaneously, Walgreens and Boots Alliance, the huge chemist in the UK, the Walgreens equivalent in the UK, merged exactly at this time. And I mean, if anybody has ever been through an acquisition, man, it is a major house cleaning event. And my brand ended up getting stripped. They said, why are we paying Noni Cream? We got all these great boots brands, Soap and Glory, Number 7, all these cool brands that we already own. And we got exited just like that. It was just over. Oh my gosh. It was like the road to glory. My name everywhere. I'm going 
from Walgreens to Walgreens taking selfies like, look, mom, let's screw you and your plane ticket. <laughs> so I absolutely ate, you know what, on that company, just ate it. And got back up again. What are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, coming out of it, what did you learn from it and how did it change the way you built your next two and whatever's coming next brands? So I learned that there was a real lack of controlling my own destiny inside these huge, huge deals. I still made good money out of the initial deal. So it wasn't like, oh my God, I'm facing bankruptcy. I didn't bankroll that brand. I had an investor. But once again, you give away power when you have investors. You give away equity. You give away so much. And I thought, man, I was better at kitchen table. I'm like the queen of the kitchen table startup. Bigger isn't necessarily better. So really think about that. You can potentially make a lot more money out of a smaller deal. So bigger is not better necessarily there. If you're me, you will certainly find more joy and authenticity in a deal that is more structured to benefit you because you effing wrote the deal. You don't write your own deal when you're dealing with Walgreens. <laughs> you can sit in the room and you ain't writing the deal. So this was a huge learning for me. Like, oh, I'm not a corporate New York or Chicago bod or even London. I Kitchen table, that's my zone. That's my sweet spot. So I took some time off and thought like, okay, what are we making next? Because by this point in my life, you guys have to remember, I have no training, no experience in product research and development. It is something that has just been self-taught. So if anybody listening to this is like, well, it's really easy for Noni to say that, like, oh, she's probably got a chemistry degree. I, I don't. I have the same Bachelor of Arts Scripps degree that I had when I was 22 years old. I have not taken on any extra education apart from the school of life. So the ability to do product research development from soup to nuts is just totally self-taught. And now more than ever, we can teach ourselves anything. I love this. Our connection to you starts with a commencement address that suggests, and you emphatically restate it, that get the education. And it seems to me that what you learned was how to learn, and you just haven't stopped. That's right. Learn how to learn. I mean, you can hustle really hard, and that's a skill, but you need to have the ability to create process, the ability to speak with intention to your project. I think these are things that we learn in higher education. But it isn't like, oh, you're out of the game if you don't have a fancy degree. But pay attention to education, whether you're teaching yourself off the internet or you're attending the local community college. Use these resources. They matter. They will move the ball forward. I would love to talk about another way that I've observed you moving the ball forward because you have this really incredible ability to break taboos with a smile. You shared your health struggles. You had a very honest behind the scenes on plastic surgery on Instagram. You shared your love life on marrying millions. I'm curious, where does that spirit come from and how does it inform your choices, both personal and professional? I love that question. That kid with the picnic basket is still in there. And this, this, is another, this is a little minor anecdote from London. So after I did get married, I married my British boyfriend. And then I was, you know, I'm legal. Hey, I could go work for the Tate. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm busy doing nails at this point. I don't want to work for the Tate anymore. But I had so much humility because I had been doing this really kind of what most people will call a menial task. And I had 
been totally immersed in life with just normal folks. My, my ladies whose nails I did, some of them were fancy Wall Street gals, some of them were not, all walks of life, all sorts of, you would never get exposure to that many different types of people in any other job than being the nail check. You just wouldn't have the access. One of my clients was a prostitute. She was lovely. I mean, really fascinating people, high flying, low flying, all walks of life, all genders, all colors, all sizes. And man, I feel very much of the people. I get very embarrassed if people put me on a big high pedestal. After I did Marrying Millions, we would get recognized in the street a lot. It felt so unnatural to have people like, Can I, will you sign this for me? And I'd be like, oh my goodness, of course, but that's so embarrassing. You don't want my signature. I'm not worthy. Yeah, I think it really is just that part, that chick with the nail basket is still guiding a lot of what I do and a lot of how I do it. And I think that the best way to engage with a customer is authentically. And so if you don't have real authenticity in what you're doing in your life, in your love, with your children, in your business, you're kind of screwed. So I said this in my speech. I'm going to say it again. Know yourself and then be yourself. Figure out who you are and then be that person. Don't mess around trying to be somebody else. We've all tried it. We've probably all failed at it, whether in love or in life. I love that part of your speech. I wrote it down on the inside of my planner that goes with me everywhere. And as I approach my 60th year on this earth, I grapple with the know thyself part and trusting that. How do you do that? How have you done that? How much time do you have? <laughs> I'm a big proponent for therapy. And so I've been doing a lot of therapy these last few years, making sure that like, did I distill this life experience correctly? Was I making the right choices for me, for my kid, for my partners? You know, that old saying, you got to do the work. And you're like, oh, shut up. Nobody wants to do the work. That sucks. <laughs> the work is hard. <laughs> well, I'm gaining this sense that your expertise is actually in that, in doing the work. But when, if ever, have you felt like an expert? And what is an expert in your mind? So I'm conceiving of a new product right now. It's in here. It's kitchen table. It's in the women's wellness area. It's not in my sweet spot of nails or color cosmetics. I can tell you enough about it without making you stop the podcast and sign an NDA. So here's what it is. It has to do with your vagina. And I was like, oh, gosh, why is no one dealing with vaginas out there? Half of us have got them. I love how we just like, can't even say the word. We call it all these kooky names. And so I, I started conceiving of that space and looking at it really carefully. And I thought, well, what gives me the right? I'm not an OB-GYN. I'm not. And then I thought, oh, yeah, no, I am a fucking expert because I'm a woman and I have one. <laughs> I am an expert. And also, I'm an expert in product research and development. I have designed and developed everything from this CBD to this nail polish. I've done this. I know how to do this. And I had to fight with myself. The little voice behind you that says, you don't know what you're doing. You're ridiculous. No one wants this. No, I am an expert. We're all experts at something. You just got to figure out what it is. It doesn't have to be something lofty. There's nothing lofty about nail polish. It's not rocket science. Noni, every time you say kitchen table, we smile from ear to ear because we have a company called Nucleus and it's built on something we call kitchen table culture. Love it. There you go. 
no head of the table. Everybody comes to the table. Everybody works together. We eat together and we respect each other. So I love this notion of the kitchen table because I too can't walk into a corporate office without sort of feeling like, why am I here and what would I possibly do? Right. Yeah. The kitchen table is where all the good stuff gets done. For me, it's where I have my best ideas when I'm in my own safe space with my own people. And no one's judging you at the kitchen table. It's a forum. Oh, so well said. Kitchen table productions, eh? Kitchen table <laughs> culture, kitchen table productions. We'll take it. Who is the first person you remember thinking of as, oh my God, what an expert? And how did that influence you? After I moved to London, I was surrounded by a lot of celebrity. So I moved from my London kitchen table doing nails. Somebody that I knew started dating a very well-respected agent, and she managed the most important people in the beauty industry. Pat McGrath, Sam McKnight, Val Garland, the legends. And she said, I don't have a nail tech on my books. Because once again, nobody was getting their nails done in London. They used to try to tell the makeup artists to do the nails. And the makeup artists were like, I don't know how to do nails. What are you talking about? So anyway, I was able to sort of catapult into this realm of being on these extraordinary sets with people that were considered the global experts in their field. Mario Testino behind the lens and just and me like like the American girl that everybody was like, who invited the Yankee with the bad jeans? That was me. <laughs> so I kind of was too clueless to realize just how intimidated I should be. And I think they kind of loved that. I didn't know on my first day shooting who any of these people were. I knew I loved Vogue magazine. I knew I loved the pictures, but I didn't know all the models by name and all of this. I didn't really come from that world. So I was able to speak with authority to my little microcosm of the shoot, which was nails. And Pat would say, I can't do Pat's accent. She's too fabulous. Said, darling, 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 here's what we're doing for makeup. And I, they'd be in their huddle. You don't enter the huddle. <laughs> and I would just try and like, get, hello, you know, here's my nail polish. And they were kind of horrified by me, but also thought it was pretty funny. They were like, wow, look at this kid. She must know what she's doing because she's not acting scared of us. And everybody's crapping themselves over on that side of the room. So there was real magic in not knowing how terrified and how out of my depth I should be. And later, as my career progressed, being able to sit amongst those people and watch them work, wow, talk about an education. I mean, I'm so fortunate. I was Kate Moss's personal manicurist. I used to go to her house every week. You want to talk about an interesting kitchen table? Spend some time at Kate's house. <laughs> So getting to kind of watch and learn, maybe attempt to emulate a little bit some of these experts. The beauty about expertise is it's contagious. It does rub off. You want to learn something, sit next to an expert. It sounds like you're describing sort of a, a cape, but being a rookie gives you this kind of blind confidence, swagger. You're like, if you know so little that you don't even know you should be worried, that you can wander into these situations and do that letting expertise rub off on you thing. I love what you just said. That's it. You've hit the nail on the head. That's the magic. And so celebrate your rookiness. There's no shame in being a beginner at something. <laughs> I got a phone call from one of my best girlfriends who owns a modeling agency. And she said, you're going to kill me. I couldn't help myself. I put you and your boyfriend forward for a TV show. And I was like, 
she didn't even ask me. <laughs> she just, she said, just wait. Like, it's like they wrote the show for you. So lo and behold, it's this Marrying Millions show. And it was really scary. Talk about a rookie moment. I've built up my reputation. I've worked really hard to become a meaningful voice amongst women, especially in the beauty industry, in the world. And now I'm going to do a reality show with my skater boyfriend who's 18 years younger than me. This could be catastrophic. This could be a career ender. So why would you do something like that? It wasn't like they paid me a ton of money. And the reason was I had this little fledgling company called Beauty Guard. And I had a decent social media following, but I'm not what you would call an influencer. And I didn't really know how to activate that audience. And I thought, well, people from all walks of life love reality TV. Except me. I ironically have never seen a single show. I freaking hate that stuff. <laughs> I haven't even finished watching my own episodes of Marrying Millions, and it's been like two years. I think I stopped after episode three. I couldn't take it. That's incredibly iconic. I'm just going to jump in and say that. <laughs> so we decided to do the show because guess what? Put your business hat on. This is free international advertising on television. And they're paying me to advertise me. We got to do this. We have to do this show. This is the hustle. This is you. It's just the consistent theme. What is it going to take? We're going to get the job done. But it's another case of something a lot of people would turn their nose up at. And you were like, free advertising, free advertising. I will be there. Sign me up. Let's go. And so cheesy, right? Oh, my gosh. It's so cheesy and embarrassing. But if not me, who? Come on. We knew it was going to be a hoot. And I thought, yeah, they can only use what I give them. I mean, they're going to film me. I'm going to do stuff. They're going to edit it. And that's the show. So how bad can it be? You know, it, and it ended up being really important for this company. It really, really helped. So Noni, in the podcast, we're bringing in this tool that we like to do in research when we're trying to understand how people are thinking about where they are as a brand or as a person. So I'm going to show you this image that starts number one with a little baby acorn and goes up to number five, a full oak tree. If you were thinking about yourself and somewhere on this spectrum, where would you put yourself today and why? I'd say I'm a solid four. <laughs> <laughs> I don't consider myself. The five is like the grand poobah, the giant oak tree from the acorn, the mighty oak. So yeah, I think that I still have a lot to learn. I'm still trying to do stuff. I had a very important learning recently, which is why I don't feel like I'm at this giant oak level. It occurred to me that truly great entrepreneurs are not just trying to do one thing at a time and that I was really shooting myself in the foot by becoming hyper-focused on just the nail polish company and sort of spinning my wheels really hard at that. And that really great entrepreneurs have their fingers in a million pots. And so I immediately set about trying to put more pots on the stove. Some of these will fail. Some of them will just bubble out and I won't pursue them. But I'm entering this phase of my life. I have a teenager of my own who's trans, who's going through all sorts of gender identity, thoughts and challenges. How do I help that person? I think I already know everything there is to know about nail polish. I need to know everything about women's wellness and particular body chemistry, et cetera. So now I have all these things I can wake up in the morning and go, okay, 
which of my 5 million Trello boards am I going to focus on today? And I love the long roots of number four because this is where you're reaping in and trying to make a stronghold in some of these categories that are not my typical category. So there's still plenty of time for me to feel afraid. There's still plenty of challenges ahead of me as a business person, as a parent, as a partner to my boyfriend, but I'm not done yet. I'm not done. Number five feels too done. I'm not that old. (laughs) I love it. And I love this permission that you're kind of granting to not focus. It's something that I feel like I beat myself up for a lot is like, you should just pick the one thing and go really hard after that. And it's frustrating when you feel kind of like you're brimming with other things that you could be pursuing. So I'm going to take that one to heart. Have so many strings to your bow. Give yourself to use your word permission to say like, okay, I can only do so much in this exact moment. What else have I got? What other creative outlets? And then all ships rise, right? It, It will instantly lift one of my other projects because I'll have a brainwave about a marketing strategy or content that can be used across all of my projects. So it's the same for you all at Nucleus. Have as many strings to your bow as you can, I think. One more thing I want to squeeze in here. I'd really love to know more about how your concept of brand building and kind of the responsibility that comes with building those brands in beauty and wellness spaces in particular rebels against industry norms, rebels against what you're seeing out there. I mean, the real conundrum in the beauty space is that the type of marketing that has worked throughout history is to tell your customer all of the many, many things that are wrong with them. You are too fat. You are too old. Your hair is gray. You have a wrinkle. Whatever it is, it works. And it has worked on me. You guys saw my plastic surgery for real. Holy crap. It works. We tell each other and we tell our customers all of the ways in which they're not enough. And I think that's really, really wrong. And I don't want to participate in that. If I ever did, I don't want to anymore. I think that there's a reason why I'm always the face and the voice of my companies. And sometimes that can be really intimidating because you're putting yourself out there for ridicule, to be mocked. I cannot tell you how often I have to defend my hair daily. Somebody will say, did you ever think about dyeing your hair brown? So I think that the way to communicate with beauty customers particularly is to say, hey, we're all in it together. I have a real responsibility. And also I'm raising a child. What am I teaching my child if I tell people that they're not good enough? You have to lead by example. So I put myself out there to be the poster child for whatever issue it is. And listen, we're going to be out here publicly talking about vaginas here in the next year. A lot of founders would be like, oh, I'll hire a spokesperson. No, no, no. We're not hiring a spokesperson. I'm going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. And then people are going to go, man, I feel like I know her. I feel like I had a kitchen table moment with her just through whatever piece of marketing I'm going to present. Yeah, I love that you find your inner rebel at the kitchen table. How beautiful is that? That that place, that sort of core place of family and nourishment is the place where we can rebel and we can reject the status quo. I think it's time. And I think that people are very, very ready for that voice. I have a responsibility to my customer to sell them products that really work, that really do something that I really believe in, that are really me. 
times. I've been offered to license my name, my face, my voice a million times. I will not do it. And some people would take that paycheck. And I'm like, no, if it ain't mine, I ain't selling it. We are so grateful and blown away by how generous you are giving us your time. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. I think you guys are onto something. I love the whole tone and tempo. I think people really want to see this, want to hear this. I'm super excited that I get to be on your show. We heard in our conversation with Noni, queen of the kitchen table startup, the power of adding more irons to your fire. Much like our friends over at Boss Molly Bourbon, who put another iron in their own fires by saying, sure, we've got jobs, we've got things going on in our lives. Let's add one more iron to the fire and create a bourbon brand from scratch. So if you're looking to shake things up, add an iron to your fire, consider adding Boss Molly Bourbon to your bar cart. It is sure to inspire. Speaking with Noni was a whole bunch of things for me. The beauty industry is kind of foreign to me. I don't paint my nails and I never feel like I want to spend time on that. I live in my head. So I wasn't sure what was going to happen. But what happened was any of my assumptions were just turned upside down. Here is this woman who's a rule breaker and a rebel from the time she's a kid, from doing her art thing and cutting her hair in wild ways and being a raver to making it through scripts and being the person who worked hard and used every skill she had and made something amazing. That story that she tells about, I'm in London, I've got no money. She's busking manicures. She's finding women on the street and then she finds her feet and she finds her fame. It's extraordinary. But what was more extraordinary was how she ran companies and how similar her philosophy is about running a company to ours. That notion that everything happens at the kitchen table and that kitchen tables are the place where dialogue happens and creativity happens and nourishing a company into being happens. And for me, it was so validating, but it was also this moment where I found a kindred spirit and I, I was all in. It's like, I don't care if you invented pickles or nail polish or what, you get it. You get how to be successful. When we were talking about earlier versions of the discussion guide, we had this like, do we want to ask people about failures or is that depressing? And people only want to talk about their successes, but is that boring? And I love that we didn't have that question, but she was like, here's my failure story. Here's everything I learned about myself by humming out of this, hi, hi, I just sold my company. I can do whatever I want moment. And then realizing that just because doors are opening doesn't mean they're the right doors for you. And that experience cementing this kitchen table inventor thing that she has going on. I just, I wish more people had that attitude that she has. She's such an interesting combination of super humble and super rebellious and not giving a shit and being really thoughtful in what she's putting out into the world. She just does things in a different way that I don't see other people, especially other successful people. They're just not moving through the world the way that she is. That shoplifting story is so cool. And I found myself 
wanting to write entire campaigns around it. The most desired nail polish ever that you can't buy. You have to steal it. Literally take a week and encourage people to steal your product because they are. Well, the fact that if sales were low because they couldn't keep product on the shelf because it was being stolen so quickly is such a wild story. The other thing that is really remarkable is her sharing. And I think I bumped into this a few times this week alone, that doing one thing really well is fine. But having multiple pots on the stove boiling at once and inventing three other things or running two businesses at the same time and knowing what you're good at, delegating out the rest, is the way that she fuels her perpetual rookie and she counts on her perpetual rookie in terms of new ideas to boost her forward. But she also wasn't shy about owning her own expertise. She's an expert at making products because she's gone round and round and round and figured it out the hard way. And what she's not an expert at is whatever company she invents next. And it seems to fuel her desire to always be creating. But the other piece of that, and it came up in the reality TV and a few places, but that there's so much opportunity in doing things that other people are too proud or stuck up or in their own head to do. And I was like, ooh, that feels really big to just say, like, what would you do or could you do if you stopped judging yourself for doing it? What would that open up for you? Which really is this notion that there is no failure. The only failure is not trying. Just because you're not good at something to begin with doesn't mean it's not going to be great. Who mixed nail polishes together to make different colors or at least did it at scale until she figured out her own formulas? It seems just logical and natural and basic. And it wasn't. People didn't cross certain lines. And This kind of gets us straight to social norms, right? And so much of the work we do, we find ourselves trying to break social norms. And there's only one way to do that, which is to understand what they are, to figure out why they are, and then to try something, to try something audacious, to try something that pierces complacency to try something that's actually more aligned with people's ambitions. I also want to say that I was nervous bringing Noni in because, one, I kind of knew that you would have a little bit of skepticism about it. But I do think once she gets to know her, she's going to think she's awesome. I'm like going to blind DM someone that I've kind of been stalking for a while and see if she says yes. I am so blown away that you can DM someone who's kind of famous. I mean, she's been on television and people recognize her in the street. And she said yes, which is so interesting. How often do we stop ourselves? And I should just turn the mirror on myself. How often do I stop myself? I have good friends who almost always say yes if I ask. And I still hesitate to ask them. But I just have this fear, oh, am I bothering someone? I think that when you embrace your inner rookie, you embrace an amount of courage. And there's some lore that Steve Jobs said. I don't know if this is his actual quote, but it's attributed to him. No is simply an excuse for more information. 
that when you're a denter, when you want to put a dent in the world, and we certainly do with Smart Rookie, we want to encourage people to embrace not knowing everything and getting out there and trying things. I got to embrace my own rookie and not be fearful to ask people near and dear and complete strangers to do this with us. What does that say? I'm going to be 60 years old and I'm still filled with these kinds of fears and I don't think they ever go away, but I'm experienced enough to know you just got to kick those out of the way and go for it. And you're proof positive that it works. Join us at thenucleusgroup.com. You'll find a page where you can book an hour. If you're wondering about something juicy, can't quite crack the nut on something that's been keeping you up, we want to hear about it. We want to help you. Come wander around with us. We'd love to hear what you observed in this episode. What did this episode leave you wondering about? What did you observe and what was said or left unsaid? Leave us a voice memo on smartrookiepodcast.com, DM us on Instagram, or send us an email, smartrookie at thenucleusgroup.com. If you like what you heard today, please support us, subscribe for more, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. This episode of Smart Rookie is brought to you by brand and strategy collaborative, The Nucleus Group with special thanks to our first season sponsor, Boss Molly Bourbon. Episode art is by Chelsea Carlson. Theme music by Ashley Bradford. Audio engineering by Sam Nash. And executive production by me, Gabriela Costa. See you next time.